You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series, Be Set Free, a study of the book of Exodus. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Could you please open with me in your Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapters 23 and 24. We have been studying through the book of Exodus on Sunday mornings in our <clears throat> series titled Be Set Free. You know, Exodus is the epic story of how God set the people of Israel free from slavery in Egypt and what that tells us about God and what it tells us about how God wants to save us and set us free. That's what we've been talking about as we've been going through this book. And uh, we're getting towards the end of it. We've only got a couple weeks left. We're already looking forward to our next series, which is going to start the week after Easter. But uh, here in Exodus chapter 23 and 24, we're going to be finishing up looking at the law of Moses this morning. So if you'd please read with me, uh, starting in chapter 24, starting in verse 3. Those of you who need a Bible to follow along, go ahead and put your hand in the air and we'll make sure that one of our ushers gets you a Bible so you can follow along. For those of you who like to read on your phone, we encourage you to use the version Bible app because we've got some live notes in there where you can follow along, stuff that's on the screen plus a, a few other things. So let's go ahead and read Exodus 24, beginning in verse 3. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stones, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God, and they ate and drank. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for uh, even sections like this, which, which are so important to dig into and explain. And Lord, we pray that as we study this and we seek insight into what it means and what it meant for them and what it means for us, Lord, would you enlighten the eyes of our hearts to really understand the significance of these words and, and to put them into practice in our lives, so that we might be people in whom you delight, that we might be people uh, who live in a way that you treasure. And so, Lord, we ask that you would bless our study this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So how many of you remember the Pledge of Allegiance? I do. I remember saying the Pledge of Allegiance when I was in school every morning, and uh, I remember that it ends with this line, right? Here's the end of it. It says, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Here in Exodus, we've been looking at how God heard the cries of the people of Israel as they were oppressed and enslaved in Egypt. And he came to their rescue and he set them free. He led them out through the Red Sea and they were free. But then something interesting happened, something maybe even a little bit surprising that Maybe a bit unexpected for, for many of us reading the story. Here's what happened. After God set them free, rather than telling them, okay, you're, you're free now, here you go, now just uh, run along and go do, go do whatever you want now. Instead, he 
continued leading them. He led them on past the Red Sea. He led them through the wilderness to a mountain. And at that mountain, he gave them his law, 613 laws, beginning with the Ten Commandments. Now, why would God do that? I mean, if the whole purpose of this whole thing was to set them free, then what's, where, where does the law come into this? Why would God bring them to this place and say, okay, now here are the rules. Here's my law. Now, here's why. And that's what we're going to be talking about today uh, as our last study, looking at the law of Moses, which we've been looking at for about three weeks now. Here's the thing. God was inviting them into something better. Something better than just being on their own and doing their own thing. He's offering them something better. What he's offering them is a long-term committed relationship. What God is basically saying is this. In light of what you have come to know about me because I rescued you, in light of what I have done for you, if you want, we can make this a permanent arrangement. We can enter into a committed relationship. We can enter into a covenant. So imagine, for example that you rescued a dog from a shelter. Maybe some of you have done that. And you cared for this dog, and you nurtured this dog, you bandaged its wounds, you took care of it, you, you welcomed it into your home, and you fed it, and you nursed it back to health. And then you said, okay, well, I guess my job is done. So you put the dog in your car, and you drove out into the mountains to a, a beautiful location way out in the mountains, and then you said to the dog, you opened up the door, and you said, okay, go ahead, run along, go do your own thing, you're free now. Well, I mean, I know that different dogs would do different things, but I'll tell you there's a pretty good chance that dog's probably not going to want to leave your car. It probably won't even get out. If it does, it's not going to want to leave your side. Why? You're offering it freedom. Isn't that the best thing in the world? Why would it turn down freedom when it can just go off and do whatever it wants and be on its own? Well, here's why. Because that animal has experienced something better, something more desirable than just being on its own and doing its own thing. They've experienced Love. They've experienced acceptance. They've experienced care. Think about it this way. I'm married and I have kids. Uh, when you're married, it's a weird thing that happens, right? Like, because here's the deal. You're an adult, but you can't just do whatever you want. Because, right, when you're growing up, the whole time you're growing up, you're thinking, I can't wait until I grow up so I can grow up and then I can do whatever I want. And, and then, you know, I'll get a job, and then I can just buy whatever I want. Nobody will ever tell me I can't have anything. I'll just do whatever I want. And then you get married, and then guess what? Like, you might be 40 years old, but if you want to do something, you've got to call your wife and be, or your husband on the phone and be like, um, so, hey, I want to go out and do this thing. Is that okay? And, uh, oh, uh, no, okay, no problem. I'll be home right away, right? Like, and if you want to, or you might have a job and you might work full time, but if you want to buy something, you got to get it okayed with your spouse. Like, hey, I want to buy this thing. It's on sale. Is that okay? Oh, no, it's okay. I'll just wait until Christmas, right? So the point is this. You're, you're an adult, but you still can't do whatever you want. You grew up this whole time hoping that maybe someday you'll be an adult and you can do whatever you want and buy whatever you want. And then you get married and you realize, well, that's not really how it works now that you're married. And you wonder, now who in their right mind would agree to be in some kind of situation like that? Well, I am, and I, I'll tell you why. It's because of this. I've discovered something better, something more desirable than just being on my own and doing my own thing. Do you know what it was like when I was on my own and I was doing my own thing? There were a couple years there where I was single. I lived by myself, and I, I lived with a couple roommates you know what it was like? I was dirty and hungry. That's, that's pretty much all it was. And you're like, no, Nick, you're exaggerating. You weren't, 
you probably weren't really dirty and hungry. Oh, trust me, I, I was. When I was single, I lived in this apartment with a couple other guys, and all of us, we were all dirty, and we were all hungry. And frankly, I don't want to go back to that. It really wasn't that, uh, that great, right? Like, you know, when I lived on my own, let me tell you about my place. I had this room in this apartment, and I had two tables in the room. One of the tables was an actual table. The other table was a cardboard box that was turned upside down, and I put stuff on top of it, right? And then I stored all my stuff in plastic shopping bags that I kept under my bed, and those shopping bags were guarded by an army of dust bunnies, right? In, in our bathroom, we had a shower, but we didn't have a shower curtain. So whenever anybody took a shower, there was just like, you know, an inch of standing water on the floor, and all the walls were wet. Everything was wet. And you might wonder, well, why didn't you just go out and buy a, a shower curtain? Well, it's a really great question. I don't have an answer for that. You see, I, I, some people are going to be in single. I wasn't one of them. And uh, frankly, I don't want to go back to that. Like dirty, hungry, lonely. And there I was, and there I was, right? Dirty, hungry, lonely, living in a box with the, living in a room with like cardboard box for a table and trash everywhere. And I was like, you know, I'm a kind of afraid of commitment because I don't know if I want to give up this lifestyle I've got going for myself, right? Like, like I was worried that I had a lot to lose. Like, I don't know. I've got a good thing going here. I don't know if I want to give this up. What did I have going for myself? I had a, a uh, you know, upturned cardboard box and a room full of trash. And I was like, I don't know if, uh, if I want to get married because I don't have to give up this lifestyle I've got going for myself. Here's the thing. Our culture tends to hold up the idea of individual autonomy, of having no ties as the supreme goal. Like, that's it. That's what we want. That's the best thing possible. No ties. Individual autonomy. But you see, there is something better than that. Love, faithfulness, relationship, covenant. And God offers us something better than just being on our own and doing our own thing. He offers us this. He offers it here to the people of Israel. He says, we could have a relationship we could make this a, a permanent arrangement. We could have a covenant of love and faithfulness and fidelity. And we see here with the people of Israel in the book of Exodus, God rescued them. He saved them already. They're already free. And now he's offering them something better than just going off and doing their own thing. He's offering them a lasting bond of love and faithfulness. He will be their God and they will be his people. And here's the thing again to remember. He's already saved them at this point. And now he's offering them this binding covenantal relationship. And that's where the law of Moses comes into play. The title of today's message is, And Justice for All. And, and I began today by quoting from the end of the Pledge of Allegiance, right? One nation under God with liberty and justice for all. Here in the final section of the law of Moses, we're going to be talking about this topic of justice and just how important justice is to God, but along with justice, there were other things that were very important to God that we see outlined here in the law, namely compassion and mercy and love. So whereas, you know, our society says liberty and justice are supreme, God would say, yes, liberty, yes, justice, but don't forget about compassion. Don't forget about mercy. Don't forget about love. And, and he actually wrote these things into his law. So, so here with God, he's establishing a new society. He's saying, okay, if you want, you can be my people and I will be your God and I'll establish a new society. And their pledge of allegiance would have been one nation under God with liberty and compassion and mercy and love and justice for all. So what we're gonna see here in this final section of the law are three things. 
First of all, I want to point out to you a radical new community. A radical new community. Secondly, we're going to talk about, we're going to see a contract signed in blood. And thirdly, we're going to see the results of the covenant. So, a radical new community, a contract signed in blood, and the results of the community. Uh, Let's talk about this radical new community. God had made the people of Israel a promise. It's a promise that he quotes again at the end of chapter 23. He says, if you will follow me, then I will lead you into the promised land. I will provide for you, I will protect you, and I will care for you. I will be your God, and you will be my people. And he says, if you want to enter into this covenant with me, Again, I will be your God. We will enter into this relationship. You will be my people. And as my people, I will make you into a radical new community. A community that's different from any other society that has ever existed before. And here in the law, what we see are the principles on which this society is going to function. They're the principles which are near and dear to the heart of God. Here in chapter 23, here's what we see. First of all, the first characteristic of this society. It's going to be a society characterized by justice. A society characterized by justice. You know, there would be laws, and those laws would apply to all people without partiality, no matter their gender, their race, or whether they were rich or poor. And this is where we get our concept of blind justice. That's why sometimes when you see justice uh, depicted, it's depicted as a lady who is holding scales. The scales, of course, speak of fairness and equity, and her eyes are covered with a blindfold. The reason that Lady Justice's eyes are covered with a blindfold It comes from this idea of blind justice, that the law applies to all people, that that justice should be blind. It shouldn't change or fluctuate depending on a person's gender or color or financial status. Now, this wasn't always the case, of course. I mean, historically, even relatively recently here in our own country, but especially in ancient society, it was pretty much a given that the rich are held to a different standard than the poor, that men are held to different standards than women, that people of certain races are held to different standards than others. But when God gives a law here, when God creates a community, a society, he says, in this community, there will be justice for everyone. This was so revolutionary. So many things about the law, I've pointed out over the past couple weeks, uh, are the foundation for what we know as human rights and justice. Did you know, for example... That this law of Moses was the first society, the first law uh, that was created where adultery wasn't only a sin for women, it was also a sin for men. Did you know that this is the first law that said that women could inherit wealth and not just men? Did you know that this is the first law that said that servants, the lowest in society, the poorest people in society, also have rights? It even said that criminals have rights. In chapter 23, let's read the first three verses. It uh, begins by saying this. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. In other words, don't show partiality to someone just because they're poor. Verse 6, though, goes on to say this. You shall not pervert the justice due to the poor in the lawsuit. In other words, uh, don't show favoritism to anyone. The, the law applies to everyone, both to the rich, the same as it does to the poor. There's a standard and hold everyone to the same standard. And then it says in verse 7, we'll continue reading, keep far from a false charge. Do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribes, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You, shall, you, you know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. 
So here's God's heart. His heart is absolute and total justice for everyone and everything. And we should never pervert justice, even when it comes to friends or family. And when it comes to dealing with the the down and out, the downtrodden, don't let your bleeding heart get rid of justice because justice is incredibly important to the heart of God. But this was not only to be a society characterized by justice, it was also to be a society characterized by compassion. We see that highlighted here partly in chapter 23, especially in that last verse I read, but, but especially in chapter 22. So if you go back a few verses in chapter 22, starting in verse 21, we read that they were not to take advantage of those who were down and out in society, those who were in a vulnerable situation, namely foreigners and the poor, immigrants. They were not to take advantage ever of childless people, orphans, or, or uh, I'm sorry, fatherless children, meaning orphans, or widows. Rather, they were responsible to take care of these people. Twice in this section, chapter 22 and 23, they are told, remember where you came from. Remember what God did for you. Don't forget your history. He says, you were foreigners in Egypt. You were oppressed. You cried out to me, and I showed you unmerited kindness and unmerited favor. And they were never to forget that. They were never to forget their history. And they were to show that same kindness and compassion to other people which God had showed to them. Have you ever seen somebody or or known somebody who inherited something? Like say they inherited wealth, but they act like they earned it. See that we can sometimes do that same thing with God's grace. God shows us favor. He shows us unmerited kindness in saving us and transforming our lives and changing us from the inside out. But over time, we can begin to act and think like we earned it, that we deserved it. Like surely the reason why God has blessed me, surely the reason God chose me is because I'm better than other people out there. I'm clearly more deserving. And of course, that's not the case. I mean, grace by its very definition is unmerited, it's undeserved. And God reminds us of that throughout the Bible. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, he reminds the people of Israel, it wasn't because you're greater than anybody that I placed my love upon you. In in Titus chapter 3 verse 5, God says that he saved us not because of the works that we did in our righteousness, but because of his mercy. In James chapter 1 verse 17, we're reminded that every good thing that we have in our lives is a gift from God. One of the things that kills compassion and mercy towards other people is when we forget our history, when we forget where we came from and how God showed us compassion and kindness and grace. And we begin to think that everybody else deserves the problems that they have, but we've earned the blessings that we have. See, this was to be a society that cared about the least of these, as Jesus called them, the weakest members in society find this very telling proverb. Proverbs uh, 29 verse 7 says this, the righteous care about justice for the poor, but the wicked have no such concern. Exodus uh, 22, for example, in verse 25, predatory lending was forbidden. Predatory lending meaning giving uh, loans to poor people at high interest rates and basically making them slaves to those loans because they'll never be able to get out from under them. Uh, Chapter 22, verse 26, we're told that you were not allowed to take as collateral for a loan something that would leave the person destitute. In chapter uh, 22, verse 27, he goes on and he says, if the cries of these people come to me, I will hear them, God says, because, why? He says, I am a compassionate God. 
farmers were required to leave unharvested areas around the edges of their farms so that poor people could come and glean and have something to eat if they fell on hard times. There were other options that we've talked about over the past couple weeks about indentured servitude and things like that, which were means to take care of the poor so that they would be provided for. But here's the interesting thing. None of these ways of providing for the poor were simply just giving them a handout with no strings attached. See, each of these things that they did to provide for the poor and the destitute also required those people to go out and and do something actively, to harvest something for themselves or to work in some way. See, the Bible would teach that if someone's unwilling to work, then that person shouldn't just be given a handout because it says in Proverbs that hunger can actually be a very effective motivator for a person who tends to be lazy. But see, I must point out again, unwilling to work is not the same thing as unable to work, right? So if someone's unwilling to work, then that's a different story. If they're unable to work, then it's time to show mercy and compassion. Check this out, though. It says in Deuteronomy chapter 15, again, the whole point I'm making here is this. The purpose of the law, one of its purposes was to create a radically new and different community. It says in Deuteronomy chapter 15, as God is summarizing the law, he says this, that if you will obey all of these commandments that I'm giving you today, if you will do everything that I've said to do in the law, then there will be no poor among you. Isn't that, I mean, think about that. Can you imagine a society in which there are no poor people, where, where the poor people are taken care of, where there's justice for all? Can you imagine that? It would be radically different. It would be radically amazing, right? The, the purpose of the law was to create a different community, something new, something different a society that was different than every other human society on earth, a society where the poor are taken care of, a society of compassion and justice for all. If you go back to the beginning of this section on the law, the section goes from chapter 19 to chapter 24. It's five chapters. If you go back with me to chapter 19, what we can see there is three verses where God gives his vision his vision for this radical new community that he's going to create if the people will be his people and he will be their God. Here's, what he, here's how he introduces the law to them. He says this in uh, Exodus 19, starting in verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and I brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The first thing that's important to note here is the order. And that's this. First, God saved them, and then he gave them the law. It wasn't the other way around, right? And the order of that is super important because every religion in the world and the inclination of every human heart is to believe that the way that it works is If I live right, if I do right, then God will accept me and bless me. But see, that's not what the Bible says. This is what makes the the God of the Bible absolutely unique, absolutely different. The God of the Bible says, no, that's not how it works. It's not based on your merits. Me placing my love on you, me saving you, it's not based on your merits. It's not based on what you do. It's based wholly on my grace that I save you and bless you and that I place my love upon you. See, grace by its nature is unmerited. It's undeserved. Our tendency as human beings is, though, when we hear that, when we see that God's love is unmerited, His grace is undeserved, our tendency can be to say, well, then why should I bother obeying Him at all, right? Like, if He's gonna love me and forgive me, and if His acceptance isn't 
predicated or contingent on my obedience, then why bother obeying him? And the answer to that question is actually given right there in chapter 19, verses 4 uh, through 6. And here's what he says. He says, if you obey me, here's why I want you to obey me. Not only in light of what I've done for you, but there's even more. He says, because of all that I've done for you, enter into this covenant with me. And here's the thing. He says, if you keep this covenant, then you will be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. You will be my treasured possession. If you do these things, God says, you will be my treasure. This word treasure is an interesting word because what it means, what it refers to is the private wealth of a great king. It refers to the private wealth of a great king. Now, it's different than the public wealth. Let me explain. See, a king or queen in those times, an absolute monarch, they would own everything. They owned the roads. They owned the fields. Everything belonged to them. Kind of like even today, the Queen of England, right? Technically, she owns the Navy, and she owns the Air Force and all these things. It belongs to her. Well, in those days, right, so a king or a queen, a monarch, owns everything. That's why God says, all the earth is mine. It's all mine. I'm the absolute monarch. It all belongs to me. That's public wealth. But in addition, there are some objects which were the king's personal treasures, things that he probably kept in his room. They were close to his heart. They gave him special pleasure. You've probably got similar things in your own life, right? You've got your own personal treasures. Like some of you, maybe you own a house or maybe you own a car. And, and that's kind of like your public wealth, right? Because you have to share it with other people. You share it with the other people in your family and your dog and everything, right? But then there are certain objects that are just yours. They're, they have special value to you. They're your personal treasures. They may not always be worth a lot of money monetarily, like market value may not be very high on them, but to you, they're priceless. Maybe their value is sentimental and you treasure those things. You keep them in special places. You keep them in little boxes, maybe even with locks on them. You keep them next to your bed so that you see them. They're things that you delight in, in a special way, in a higher way. They're treasures. And that's what's being talked about here. God's saying, Everything is mine. I'm God. I own it all. But if you enter into this covenant relationship with me and you live in this way, then you will be my treasure. Now why? Now well, let's think about it this way. When you fall in love with someone, what you immediately begin to do is you begin to research them. I mean, not like online. Maybe you do that too. But you research them and you try to find out what they like, what they dislike. Why? Because that way, then you can give it to them, right? The things that they like, the things they dislike. For example, my, my wife loves coffee, and she does not like chocolate. It's kind of an anomaly, I know. But she doesn't like chocolate. So I give her coffee, but I don't give her chocolate. Why? Am I trying to manipulate her? Am I trying to coerce her? Giving her something she wants so she'll do something for me? No. See, when you love someone, when you really love someone, it makes you happy to see them happy. It, you are fulfilled by seeing them fulfilled. Their joy brings you joy. So, so what you do is when you love someone, you get to know their likes and their dislikes and what pleases them and what their wants and desires are so that you can fulfill them because bringing them joy brings you joy. And here, here's what God is saying. He's saying, I've done my part, right? I listened to the cries of your heart. I answered them. I came to your rescue. I saved you. I placed my love upon you. I showed you grace. I brought you to myself. And now here's how you can reciprocate. Here's how we can have a relationship of mutual love and reciprocation. Here are the things that I love. I delight in justice. I delight in honesty. I delight in integrity. I delight in love. I delight in compassion. And if you want to have a relationship with me, these are the ways that you can bring joy to my heart. 
And if you do these things, then you will be my treasure. And he goes on to say, not only will you be my treasure, but you will be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. You know, the, the purpose here, again, is to create a radically different community, a community of people who lived in relationship with God, and as a result, they were different. One writer put it this way. I thought this was interesting. He said, those who are seeking to ravish the heart of the one who has saved them and loved them, they will inevitably live in a way that is different from the general population around them. What the word holy means, it means distinct, other, different, set apart for a purpose. The job of a priest, for example, they were set apart for a a calling and a purpose which was to mediate between man and God. They were to mediate, uh, they were to bring people to God. A kingdom of priests means this, to be a group of people who together show the world who God is. And that was the point of these laws, that if they lived in this way, it would speak volumes to people around them about who their God was. And Jesus talked about this same thing, actually, in the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe you remember, he was speaking to his disciples and he said, you are the light of the world. He said, you are a city set upon a hill, a city set upon the hill that cannot be hidden for the world to see. And that you there, it's kind of difficult in English because we use the same word you to speak in the singular, and in the plural. But it's really important to realize that when Jesus is saying that, that word you is in the plural. It's a y'all. As much as I don't like saying that word, that's what it is, right? Just so you understand, he's saying y'all together are the light of the world. All y'all together are a city set on a hill. So you can't be a city by yourself. And likewise, he's also saying you can't, being the light of the world isn't something that you just do as an individual. What he's talking about, he's not speaking to individuals. He's speaking to his followers collectively about what their calling is to be together as a group. And this speaks to us as God's people today, as a church, as a church, right? It speaks to us as a Christian community. We are called to be a radically different community, a community of people who are radically loving, radically compassionate, radically generous with the things that we have, people who forgive others, who don't hold grudges, people who serve each other and serve others and aren't just looking out for ourselves. The Apostle Peter, he uses the same phrase from Exodus 19. He takes it, he reaches back to Exodus and brings it into the present when he writes to the Christians in his day. And he says this in 1 Peter 2 verse 9, he says, you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. It's the exact words from Exodus 19. He says, a people for God's own possession. That's that idea of his special treasure. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Peter's reaching back to Exodus and bringing it to the present day and saying, this is God's calling for us as Christians today as well, to be people who live in this radically different way that shows the world who our God is because they see him at work in us and as individuals, but also as a community. See, that's what we see here in the law. What we see is a, the formation of a radically different community of a people who have been saved by God and who are responding to God's grace in their lives by entering into a relationship with Him and living in a way that honors Him and pleases Him. And as a result, God considers them His very special treasure, precious to Him. And as they live to seek and please God, the result will be the formation of a brand new kind of community, a different community that's different than society at large, a community that models God's heart and draws people to Him. And that's our calling too. But let me ask you this on a different angle on this. 
Let me ask you this. Have you responded to the grace of God to you? Have you responded to God's grace towards you? Maybe you've never really done that and today's the day when you need to respond to God's grace to you. Maybe you have done that in the past but, it's, but things have happened and it's time for you to do that again. See, the way that God called these people to respond to his grace is the same way that God calls us to respond to his love and grace for us. Three things we see here. First of all, by saying yes, by putting down your yes and saying yes to this invitation to be in a relationship with him. Secondly, by making him your Lord. And thirdly, by becoming part of the radical new community that he is building. So that brings us to our second point here. Our second point is this, a contract signed in blood. That's the second thing we see in our text. And we saw it in chapter 24, which is the text that we began with this morning. And here's what's going on there in in chapter 24. Moses has gone up on the mountain and God has given him the laws. You remember that the first 10 commandments were spoken out loud. But then the rest of the 603 commandments, which were specifically for their society, Moses received those from God up on the mountain. So now Moses has gotten those and he's come down from the mountain he's written them all down and now he reads them to the people and he he says okay basically he's saying okay guys this is what God is asking of us this is these are kind of the terms of the agreement that God is offering to us what do you guys think and their response in verse uh, chapter 24 verse 3 it says all the people answered with one voice and they said all the words that the Lord has spoken we will do now we hear that right and we're like Oh, don't say that. Don't say that, guys. Come on. Like, I understand that you're caught up in the moment, but, but come on. You don't want to go there. You don't want to say that. I mean, couldn't you just say, like, we'll obey most of the time? Or, like, we'll obey lots and lots of it. Like, we'll try sometimes. Oh, you know, but we're not promising to do everything, right? But, of course, they say, no, we're going to do it all. Everything. We got this. And and of course, God knew that they would say that. And and this is all part of his plan, as we'll see. The next day, early in the morning, what we read there in chapter 24, here's what happened. Moses got up early in the morning and he slaughtered some animals as offerings to the Lord. Two different kinds of sacrifices were given, a burnt offering and a peace offering. Later on in the book of Leviticus, we read about the different offerings. Each of them had different symbolism. They communicated different things. So for example, the burnt offering was a symbol of devotion it symbolized devotion complete devotion to god because all of the meat in a burnt offering would be completely consumed by the fire until nothing was left and it was a way of communicating to god god i give you everything all that i am all that i have it's all yours so it was a symbol of dedication and commitment the peace offering on the other hand was a little bit different it celebrated fellowship with god Right? So in that offering, you wouldn't burn up all the meat until it was gone. Rather, you would actually cook it on some fire, but then take it off the fire. And the people who brought the sacrifice would eat it together in the presence of God, sometimes with the priests. It was kind of like a holy barbecue that they would have together. It was a time of fellowship and celebration. But Moses does something unusual here. In verse 6, it says this, Moses took the blood of the animals and he separated it. And he took half of it and he set it aside in a bowl. And then in verse 7, or in several bowls actually, in verse 7 it says that he took the, cov- the book of the covenant, which is what we've been reading from chapters 20 to 23 here in Exodus, and he reads it out loud to the people. And they say, again, all that the Lord has spoken, we will be obedient. And then here in verse 8, super weird, right? Here's what Moses does. He says that he takes the blood and he throws these bowls of blood on the people. 
And, and then he says, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with his words. Like, what? Like, you just threw a bowls of blood on people? Like, I want you just... See, we were just like, yeah, Bible, Bible, Bible. But I want you to put yourself in this situation. Like, imagine that I'm here today, and I'm like, so, uh, hey, guys, do you want to live your lives for God, like, for real? And you're like, yeah, we totally do. And I'm like, sweet, we're just going to do a little exercise here, and I'm just going to throw bowls of blood on you. Like, you'd be like, what is going on? You'd probably call the police, like the health inspector would get involved. It, it would be a bad, bad scene, right? So what's going on here? Well, this is weird to us, but it wasn't weird to them. Why? Because they didn't have a written culture like we have. They had a dramatic culture. And the way that you ratified a contract in that culture wasn't the same way that we ratify a contract. Like when we write a contract, we sign a piece of paper and, you know, contract's done. The way that they signed a contract, entered into an agreement, was that they would act out the penalty for breaking that agreement. So sometimes... We have other examples of this in the Bible. Sometimes they would cut an animal in half and they would pass through the middle of the animal essentially saying, I'm dead serious about this agreement. And if I fail to do what I promise to do, then may the same be done to me. May I be cut into pieces. So when Moses, he takes this blood and he sprays the people with it, right? He throws it on them. What is he doing? He's ratifying the covenant. He's signing the contract. They're saying, he's saying he offered it to them to read it beforehand the day before. They said, yeah, we're good with that. And then he says, okay, this is how we're going to sign the contract. And basically what they're saying is, if we fail to do everything that we promise to do, if, if we don't do everything we promise to do, which is everything in the covenant, keeping the law perfectly, because that's what they promised to do, then may our blood be shed. That's, that's what they're agreeing to. This is a contract which is signed in blood, their own blood, really. And we look at this and we say, oh, this is not a good idea, right? Because we, some of you, you, you've read the rest of the story. You know what's going to happen. And even if you haven't, you mean it's pretty clear. They're not going to be able to do this, right? They just promised that they're going to be able to do everything all the time, and they're not going to be able to do it. And the penalty for not doing it is death. So that means that these guys are in big trouble, but before we get too far ahead of ourselves, let's look at the third thing, and that's this that we see in our text, the result of the covenant. In chapter 24, verse 9, again, we read this at the beginning. Here's what happens. The people enter into this covenant with God, and then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, 70 of the elders of Israel, they go up on the mountain, and it says that they see God. Now, they didn't see God's face. We know that because later on, we're told that no one can see God's face and live. But what they experienced was some kind of nearness, some kind of closeness to God and they basically say it was indescribable I mean it was something like sapphire but I mean I, I don't know it was something that there are just no words to explain and it says in verse 11 here's what happened they came near to God and they ate and they drank and they did not die now in that culture especially to invite someone into your home to invite them to your table to eat together to drink together that was the ultimate act of friendship and fellowship and intimacy this is the blessing of the covenant. This is the result of the covenant. God is saying, if you want to enter in this covenant, which they just did, he's saying this is what happens when you enter into this covenant with me. He welcomes you in as friends. And they have this intimate fellowship in his presence. And this is a picture of what God invites us into in Jesus. He invites us into a covenant relationship to his table, in his presence, to eat with him and drink with him as friends. But of course we know that there's a problem. We know that because we've already talked about it. They just signed a contract in blood. 
Right? They just agreed that they're going to do everything that God requires of them or else they should die. Now, it's not going to be very long before they wish that they hadn't been so confident because they're not going to be able to do this. And the fact is that none of us, not even the best of us, are able to always do everything that God requires of us. Anybody can find somebody and point to them and say, well, at least I'm not as bad as that person. Anybody can do that, but none of us can live up to God's standard of goodness and rightness and perfection. And if the punishment for falling short of God's requirements is death and being cut off from this beautiful relationship with God that we see here, well, then we're all in trouble because not a single person who has ever lived has been able to do this without falling short at some point in time. Most of us miss the mark pretty regularly, but all of us fail sometimes. And that's exactly what the Bible says. It says that all have fallen short. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It says that the wages of sin is death. And to make matters worse, it's not just physical death. The Bible says that the soul that sins shall surely die. In other words, the penalty for falling short of God's perfect standard isn't just physical death. It's spiritual death. Eternal death, separation from God who himself is the source of all that is good. And so it means being cut off for for eternity from everything that is good and dying an eternal spiritual death. But here is the good news. Here's the hope that we have. Jesus Christ hung on a Roman cross. But before he did that, he was having dinner with his disciples, this group of men who were very familiar with the book of Exodus. They had grown up knowing it their entire lives. And what did Jesus do to these people who are very familiar with the story we just read? At the Last Supper, he holds up this cup and he says, this is the blood of the covenant. He says, this is my blood shed for you. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22, we're told that now we can draw near to God with full assurance and faith because our hearts have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean. See, on the cross, Jesus' blood was shed and you know what that means it means that he took the penalty that we deserved he took the penalty that you deserved he fully obeyed god he deserved the blessing of the covenant he deserved the fellowship and the closeness and the nearness but in the most amazing act of grace and generosity and sacrifice he switched places with us he took the curse so that we could receive the blessing of the covenant fellowship with god The way that we come to God and also the way that we stay in relationship with God is by His grace. Remember it this way. Justice is giving someone what they deserve. Mercy is when you don't give someone what they deserve. But grace is when you give someone something that they don't deserve. And in Jesus, God is both just and merciful because He is gracious. You see, because Jesus took the curse that you and I deserve. But even more than just not giving us what we deserved, he gave us something we don't deserve. The blessing of the covenant, fellowship with God, love, blessing, forgiveness, redemption, and eternal life. And when you really understand that, when it takes root in your heart and it goes from up here to down here, then you're free. You're free to give your life to him and live wholeheartedly for him and to bring him glory and live in a way that he absolutely treasures. Amen? Let's go ahead and stand and pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace towards us. We thank you, Lord, for your mercy. Lord, you are a God of justice, and we honor you for that. We are, you are a God who is truly right and good. Thank you, Lord, that you're also a God who is full of mercy and grace towards us. 
Thank you, Lord, for the blessing of the covenant that we have in Jesus. And Lord, we pray that we would live in that place of understanding what has been done for us. And Lord, that we would reciprocate that towards you and that we would live in a way that you absolutely treasure. Lord, help us to do that by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series, Be Set Free, a study of the book of Exodus. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.